Hello queens and beans. Today on the podcast we have Kevin Levin. Kevin is a communications consultant based in Richmond, Virginia and host of the podcast Jive Talkin with Kevin Levin where he explores the meaning of authenticity through an honest discussion of culture, art, life, and everything in between. Together, we explore the struggle of self-discovery and the cultural work of living your vision through the lens of storytelling, the art of conversation, literary icons, and of course, bees. Hey, Kevin. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I am very excited for this conversation about your own creative work in the podcasting realm as a communicator. Well, thank you for inviting me onto the show, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation. The questions that you sent initially in the outline were some of the most poignant and interesting questions that have been posed to me, period. So I'm really stoked to have this conversation with you. Oh my God, I'm so happy to hear that. And just knowing that you are in such intention with the art of conversation, I really had to go deep. So let's get into it. Yeah. So Kevin, you are the creator and host of the podcast Jive Talkin, a cultural pod exploring the meaning of authenticity through an honest discussion of culture, art, life, and everything in between. That's one of the first introductions that you give in your own voice. Mm -hmm. This is your own expression of self-discovery, shared exchange, and as you say, the ideas, colors, and flavors expressed through different cultures and storied ways of being. Take us a little deeper into the story you're weaving through drive talking. How is it an expression of who you are where you've been, and where you're going. Oof. So for me, like I kind of get into this a little bit in that first episode, but dive talking for me growing up refers to this idea of speaking candidly, speaking authentically, speaking from the heart. And I wanted to kind of reclaim that meaning Because if you look at Merriam-Webster, really like any kind of like dictionary, you'll see jive defined as trickery or as deception, a lot of like really negatively charged um, uh, definitions are what you'll find if you look in the kind of like centrally, uh, the central authorities of like meaning, um, which felt really Uh, wrong, pernicious is the word that came to mind. And so I kind of wanted to like lay, have that name at the foundation of the project, which is really kind of geared towards like acknowledging the importance and the power that words have and also speaking person to person in an authentic way kind of moving away from that like realm of pretension into the realm of um, like honest engagement. Yes. And then also I suppose jive talking refers to a dialect of speaking that is not white. Um, (laughs) And I suppose that's also intentional. And I guess there's also this idea of like code switching is a really uh, sensitive subject for some. And I find myself like bouncing back and forth between these different codes and switching in between these different codes. And sometimes like I'm not consciously aware of it and like coming to terms with that, I suppose, coming to terms with the, these different environments in which um, there is this feeling that I need to code switch for the benefit of being understood or for the benefit of being heard or for the benefit of my listener or for, you know, for all of these reasons. Um, and I suppose um, appreciating that this space that I'm cultivating 
is really uh, earnestly trying to um, create the space for being um, true, being you. Uh, I guess that's what I have to say on that. Yeah, being true, being you. I love it. And in episode one of Jive Talkin', which I'm sure our listeners will get to experience for themselves when they go and listen to your excellent podcast, but you you delve into the history of Jive as a cultural artifact and living expression of Black community that grew out of the heart of artistic and cosmopolitan Black expression in the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s and 30s. And how we define ourselves and our cultural expressions to the outside world is really such an important practice of self-definition and also um, dignifying the cultural backgrounds that we come from. As you said, the Merriam-Webster dictionary and the systems of meaning that it represents, it literally, it's, it's derogatory of this cultural form of expression that has such a dance in its approach to communication as you as you kind of characterize the art of conversation as well so how do you think using um this history and cultural flavor of jive builds a bridge and opens a doorway for the kinds of connection and conversation that you're hoping to have well the, in the history of the term jive, in my research, it seems that it was actually Cab Calloway, a really awesome performer and composer, uh, producer extraordinaire, um, who um, not necessarily originated that term or created that term, but he created his own dictionary, um, which was titled like... Uh, like the dictionary of Harlemese speech, or in other words, like the language that folks from Harlem used and were using. And he like created this reference work so that people could, I suppose, reflect on how language shapes over time and how culture, um, I suppose, uh, creates any roads language, if that makes sense. Um, mm. And like, I suppose, like how that weathering affects um, meaning over time, how that weathering affects understanding over time. Um, I suppose as far as bridge building is concerned, kind of building on the ideas um, expressed before, I feel that if invited to be candid, people will show up. <laughs> and I love this idea of um, almost like approaching the familiar in an unfamiliar way, like approaching the mundane, like with like a sense of wonder, with a sense of awe. Um, and part of the uh, inspiration for the show initially was some of the best conversations I've ever had were with strangers in passing, traveling through places. And there's really no pretension when talking to strangers, especially if there is kind of the like, what's the word? Almost like an expectation that like, there's a transience of that engagement, there's a transience of that uh, exchange. And so like, what do I have to lose by being true to who I am? What do I have to lose from expressing what is um, on my heart or on my mind in that moment? For me, that's how I approach those kind of situations anyway. And so it's like, maybe if I kind of invite people onto the show, friends, acquaintances, uh, strangers onto the show who are willing to have that kind of conversation, which could really be about any number of things, but who are willing to like be in that space that I'm hosting, you know, what awesome things could unfurl as a result. It's, it's an ongoing experiment. <laughs> yes, 
Absolutely. And from what I can tell, it's been very well received. I know that I've been very excited about it. Thank you. Switching gears to something that we were talking about before we started recording. Um, I have this motto. I'm going to let you in on my own personal mantra that I have been reminding myself of lately, which is embrace where you thrive and have grace where you tried. It's something I remind myself as a way of breaking out of perfectionism. And I see perfectionism as one of my most profound struggles that I'm just now becoming aware of. And it's something that I'm unearthing in myself that I think so many of us are struggling with and we don't even have a name for it, perhaps, or we rec- we don't recognize it in our actions. But I think that so many of us are, we would rather not try than fail. Or we would rather not ask than be exposed to be unaware or to not know. And one of my favorite writers and host of the podcast Finding Our Way Prentice Hemphill says, perfectionism is a perpetual commitment to self-doubt. Where do you think self-doubt in the face of this imagined perfection disrupts our creative expression and understandings of ourself in the world? Well, in my view, Self-doubt disrupts our creative expression and our understandings of ourselves in the world. And it kind of like exists at the intersection of preparation and readiness. (laughs) I found that you can, or one can prepare for countless hours and still feel the pangs of anxiety that accompany doing the work or acting or performing when the time comes. And so you can prepare tirelessly and never feel completely ready. And then that margin of doubt is only widened by fear and insecurity. So... Uh, I suppose continuing on that that thread, it's like I I like to think perfectionism is the cousin of comparison. It's like there's this feeling that your work, <laughs> your ideas or practices aren't good enough because they don't mimic someone or something else that we admire. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> yes, and we're so eager to be the expert. I think something that I'm really interested in exploring on this show is the perspectives of young people because in the hierarchy of you know who has access to reputation that is respected and who has who is assumed to have knowledge and capability young people are often um, placed low in that ladder of power and credibility and Mm -hmm. At the same time, young people are the primary voices that I'm currently inviting onto the show. And part of the reason for that is because we are often in a stage of intense exploration. And I think that we lose that exploration through the ways that we are educated, the ways that we are groomed to present ourselves, and also... um, our societal norms and beliefs around success. And I see a lot of young people around me trying to break out of that paradigm and explore their own creative expression, their own creative entrepreneurship, their artistic expression, um, trying to carve new vocations out of an economy that has not made space for them. And I think that's something that we share in a way. And we're going to get into your work as a freelance um, consultant in a little bit. But yeah, what do you think about that long progression that we go through? Well, I feel that that progression that we go through I understand that as like the process of finding oneself, the process of grounding oneself. Um, And it's a struggle. (laughs) It is a perpetual struggle. Every day, it requires so much um, commitment 
and so much dedication and so much, I suppose, patience to acknowledge that we are both defined in terms of our experiences and the impact that those um, those experiences have on how we see the world and how we understand the world and how we understand ourselves. And also um, appreciate that like with each new day, like we too grow a bit and in that growth, there is unknown. <laughs> there's, 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 there's like a, a tension there, like a, like a, a duality of both like there is new life, but there is also, I suppose, like decay somewhere and like being able to like navigate that is um, uh, process and being able to, I suppose, like prune, like prune away that which like no longer serves you or that which is decaying and being able to like sustain like the most vibrant version of yourself um, is something that maybe we get better at over time or maybe we, you know, become more skillful at over time. And it's really awesome that you're holding this space because I feel like it's through conversations like these and through the like being vulnerable with others and allowing other people to like share their understanding and their perspective of what we're thinking about and what we're going through that we're actually able to act with a little bit more courage. Yes, courage. That is the word that I was thinking about as well. So speaking of education, um, you are a graduate of James Madison University's communication and advocacy master's program. And in academia, we use a lot of interesting words to describe the matter which we study. We call the focus of our studies our subject matter. We call the field in which we study our discipline. We call the person completing those studies a master. To my mind, there is both a subtext of domination in this language, perhaps rooted in the origins of formal education as something that was restricted to the male, um, you know, social privileged class, mm. but also at the same time, a reverence that elevates the pursuit of knowledge to a special class of people who have cultivated their intellectual craft. So as a master of the discipline of communication, how have you cultivated your craft and how do you see your own discipline of learning and evolving fit into the field to which that discipline belongs? I suppose I cultivate my craft by speaking and writing a lot. <laughs> um, I feel like the art of communication requires constant practice and constant um, expression. Um, I don't think that you can really grow as an artist of any kind without that practice, um, without that perpetual refinement of one's creative expression, getting a little bit closer to something honest through every work, um, through every sentence, through every paragraph, through every idea that you're trying to express through whichever medium um, you're trying to express it. Um, as far as, I suppose, as far as the, you asked about my own discipline of learning and evolving as opposed to the discipline of communication itself, correct? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I suppose I went to graduate school because I specifically wanted to study the organized tradition of propaganda. That was my research interest. I kind of wanted to like, what's the word? Demystify the word itself and the practice itself because 
it, it, it occurred to me in going to graduate school that especially in that time, it was 2018, um, autumn, uh, that I started my program. And especially in the midst of the, the political um, situation at that time, that was a, a term that was thrown around a bunch. And I was just really fascinated, I suppose, by the history and the legacy of that term. And I wanted to understand the relationship between propaganda as a, as really as an art, honestly, and how that art connects to communication, how that art connects to um, mediums of expression. And I suppose like my own learning and evolving has um, been of taking in and absorbing a lot of information and a lot of research in that area and then finding ways, I suppose, to like cultivate in my perspective, like healthy and like thriving communities using the information that I have garnered over that, um, over that experience. Yes. Yeah. And I did some digging in your LinkedIn and I found that you, among the work that you do, you act as a liaison between organizations and the publics they seek to engage. So in that work, what insights have you collected about the art of telling a compelling story? And where do you think skillful articulation of that story often falls apart for those trying to spark and maintain engagement in the public sphere? I think the articulation of the story often falls apart when individuals lose sight of their own vision, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like a, a, a issue or that I see happen a lot is people will start to talk about what they think somebody else wants to hear. They'll begin to talk about what they think somebody else wants to know as opposed to talking about what they know and what they care about and what they feel, if that makes sense. And I feel like that inclination to, I suppose, uh, talk about this kind of like to, to talk in this realm of like, it really falls to pretension again. I mean, that's like the buzzword of this, this, this episode, but it's like talking about what you think someone else wants to know, as opposed to talking about what you know and like what you care about and how that aligns to the relevancy of the conversation being had is something that gets people to a lot of trouble um, because there's a huge gap between two heads, you know, even in this conversation here, you know, <laughs> I can only know what's inside my head. I can't know what's inside your head. And so if I try to start to pivot the way that I'm speaking and the way that I'm thinking to try to anticipate what you're thinking, um, you know, there, there will be mixed degrees of success, but it, to no extent will I ever fully know what's actually going on inside your head. And so it's the best that I the best that I can do is to listen with intention, honestly, and to engage and to be empathetic in the midst of this conversation so that I can actually hear what you're saying and what you care about and what you're interested in and then to respond um, intentionally um, and to be present. Uh, I feel like the, the, the crux of that idea is like a lack of presence in communication. Yes. So what you're telling me is that the missing piece of communication is listening. Yeah, 100%. A lot of people, <laughs> I, I have a bone to pick with that one. A, a <laughs> lot, a lot, a lot of people don't really listen with the intention of listening. They listen with the intention of responding or countering. Mm 
And you have to parse those apart because as soon as you start to listen with the intention of countering or responding, there is this tendency to not really appreciate what's being said in full. It's kind of like you're waiting, you're anticipating, you're trying to get just enough context so that you can uh, 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 retort, if that makes sense, as opposed to like really like embracing and appreciating what it is that's being said like in, in its totality. Um, that this conversation is taking me back through the thread of many other things we've talked about, starting with um, the meaning of authenticity, which is what you place at the center of your own podcast and this creative project that you're undertaking. And it's that is also one of the core questions of the Wild Honey Collective. And I think we so much want to be seen in our authenticity and our uniqueness, but we also are afraid to bring that part of ourselves naked into the world. And at the same time, there's a lot of conditioning that we experience to kind of like peacock ourselves to the world and say like the loudest and most flashy presentation of self is the best. And perhaps that's part of why conversation falls apart when we're not really listening to each other because we are so focused on trying to perform a certain identity that is um, the most auspicious, perhaps. Mm. And I also think of one of my favorite authors, Adrian Marie Brown. Um, she writes a, in her book, Emergent Strategy, which is all about shaping change in movements that when we are learning how to practice our relationships for the world that we want, we are doing that on the smallest scale of intimacy and interpersonal relations. So when we're trying to learn how to truly see and hear each other and listen with empathy in a way that honors the place of sharing that the person we're with is coming from we are actually practicing for the kinds of dignifying and liberating relationships that we want to see come into our lives at the larger scale mm. wow like it's a, what what even need be added to that <laughs> If anything, <laughs> period, <laughs> period, I, I, period, that's my contribution. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to drop the mic and let that one rest. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I think not every, not, not like, I'm, I'm kind of just like in awe of that, that, that train of thought. I'm just going to honor that by not saying anything else. <laughs> <laughs> And this, dear listeners, is listening. <laughs> you know, not every, not every comment or remark needs a response. Okay, Sometimes. well played, well played, Kevin Levin. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's in it's 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 out of respect for how dope something was sometimes it's out of respect for the space that one needs to really I suppose like process uh, intense emotion sometimes it's out of respect for the uh, like the, the the appreciation for the relationship I feel like in the good this isn't a particularly good context I'm just like wow that was really dope <laughs> so I just kind of want to <laughs> step aside mic drop moment period but I feel like that same idea could be taken um in conversations or in moments that aren't um, so positively charged and, you know, just a, uh, a passing remark. If you find yourself in a situation where someone says something and it really triggers you, just like take a moment of pause. Like you, you can always take a moment of pause. That's, you have that, you're allowed to do that. And I right. feel like sometimes people just need to hear that. And then the other person's like, wait, you just changed the script on me. I don't know what to, I don't know how to react now. 
and then he's kind of like brought into reality for a moment. Listeners, if you if you feel so inclined, please press pause on this and take a big deep breath. Just let it that soak in. But since we are in the business of talking, we're gonna keep it moving. Okay. That sounds good. <laughs> so in the opening episode to this podcast, we explore the restorative justice educator Miriam Kaba's idea that imagination is a form of world making. As a curator of storytelling space yourself, I'm so excited to ask you, what lineages inspire your perspective on how storytelling woven together with imagination has always been a powerful tool? And to what end, if any, how do you think our stories shape our struggles for freedom and sovereignty, especially in the context of how we understand where we are now? Hmm. I suppose I'll start by saying I think it's worth noting that there are three artists that I suppose inspire me to do the work that I do every day. Those three artists are James Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry, and oh gosh, I'm looking at my like wall of books over here just so that I can like. Um. <laughs> That's going to be the cover photo for this episode is your wall of books. <laughs> well, I'll, send you, I'll send you a picture. Honestly, honestly, I'll leave it to the, I'll leave it to those two. I know there's like a lot of people who inspire me, but I always think of James Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry as like a pair or as a couple. I see them as twin flames. They were best friends. And mm. um, I, 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 I want to I shine some light on Lorraine because I feel like she deserves so many flowers. Um, mm. um, both of them are storytellers and prolific writers and authors of that. And it's from reading their works and engaging with their works that I suppose I began to appreciate the power that words have for defining the realm of possibility. Um, mm. I think, <laughs> I think like people can only understand in the context of stories. Understanding happens in the context of stories. And the stories we tell ourselves, the metaphors we use, the language we use, defines the terrain which understanding happens, if that makes sense. And so what was I was talking to someone just yesterday and I was like, well, if everything is a football game, what happens when you see something that couldn't happen in a football game? <laughs> and I, I use that metaphor because Americans in particular love American football, but that game being what it is, is not indicative of all of life. It's mm. indicative of us, specific and limited number of rules and actions. Right. It's like when um, in Batman, when Bane descends on the football stadium and proceeds to wreak havoc on the entire society. It's kind of like what capitalism has done to its own football game. <laughs> I think that's a really awesome, a really <laughs> awesome, like metaphor to bring in here. Like that's the rules of football game, <laughs> right? the, the rules of football game don't account for a bane. No, and yet here we are, like runaway capitalism and climate change. And <laughs> did you have anything to add before I threw a wrench in it? I really just wanted to like find 
like a mic drop quote from Lorraine since I brought her into this conversation. Oh, yeah, please do that if you can. I have her work here. Um, it's an awesome, really small paper-bound book here titled To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. And it's an oh. informal autobiography of Lorraine Hansberry. It was created posthumously, post-mortem. Uh -huh. Word's always hard for me. Um, she, she passed very, very young, I think at the age of 31 or 33. Mm. Um, and like you if you, you, if you read her work and listen to like the select audio clippings that are around, you'll just, I'll speak for myself, I'm always in awe of how brilliant and how bright she was. And I suppose I have I have this highlighted here, and I suppose we'll just have to take it out of context. She's asked the question, what is the most important result of your familiarity with Shakespeare? What has he given you? To which she responds, comfort and agitation, so bound together that they are inseparable. Man, as set down in the plays, is large, enormous, capable of anything at all, and yet fragile too. This view of the human spirit, one feels it ought to be respected and protected and loved rather fiercely. Mm. She goes on to say, rollicking times Shakespeare has given me. I love to laugh and his humor is that of every day, of every man's foible at no man's expense. Language. At 13, a difficult and alien tedium, those Elizabethan cadences, but soon a balm, a thrilling source of contact with life. Oh my goodness, forget good times. I want rollicking times for the rest of time. Rollicking times for the rest of time. I love that. I I'm personally dead. want that for myself. I want that for you. I want that for everyone. Lorraine Hansberry is an ancestor, and I she has given me standard for rollicking times and nothing <laughs> less. Mm. Actually, no, I've never read her or haven't been familiar with her, and so I'm so glad that you brought her in, especially as a twin flame to James Baldwin. That is amazing. Well, this show is inspired by the badass nature of the bees and the badass women that inspire us. And I thought I, I, I wouldn't be doing any of the, let me step back. I wouldn't be anywhere close to the person that I am today if it wasn't for Lorraine Hansberry, if it wasn't for James Baldwin, if it wasn't for my mom, my grandmother, uh, and, and so many other important women uh, in my lives. I, I suppose it's, it was just important to, to bring them in to this conversation. Cause... Absolutely. Yes, we work in service to the queendom. Speaking of the queendom, your first podcast episode, your first full-length episode, was a legendary collab with your partner, Grace, all about intentional partnerships. Now, what is it, a year later? Uh, just about, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> about a year later, you and Grace are living in a new city, growing into the second half of your 20s and other very exciting life developments. I'm curious, what kind of response did you get in yourself, in your partnership, and from your listeners um, from that episode about cultivating intentional partnerships? And what do you think people did not really hear in your conversation that requires elaboration in this moment? I'll say this. Being intentional with your partnership, being intentional in partnership is a process. It's not a one-off action. 
you don't just decide one day, I'm going to be intentional in my partnership with this person or in my relationship with this person. And then, you know, like, you know, clap, like brush your hands together and say, all right. And that was that. And, you know, now I can go on to other things. It's something that you have to work at every day. It's a practice in and of itself. Being intentional is, um, and I think it's important to note, I, I, pose this question to Grace um, after um, seeing some of the ideas that you had um, for today's episode. And I wanted to see what her thoughts were. And she wanted to contribute that. What did she say? I took a note here. Um, It doesn't get harder to be in an intentional relationship, but it doesn't get easier either. You can get to know each other better. You can, you know, begin to cultivate a certain understanding of languages and triggers and other things that are very personal. Um, but when it comes to friction, which happens, um, it still requires the same amount of courage. It always requires the same amount of courage um, as when you first began your relationship. And I suppose even to that quote from Lorraine, it's like, there's, People are capable of so much and so so strong, and relationships can be incredible and vibrant and also quite frail, too. And that's part of the human condition, and that is a component of every relationship. And Grace made this point. It's never calm forever, <laughs> to which I responded, volatility is the name of the game, but it's beautiful. <laughs> is that what it's called? <laughs> <laughs> I've been playing the game this whole time. I didn't even know its name. <laughs> I, that That's just my perspective. That's my perspective on it. Uh, just a a game a game of volatility higher highs and higher lows with the ones we love Mm. thank you both for sharing in response to that and something that is one of my primary drives to create this to curate this conversation space is to build a solid foundation of ideas and values from which real life gathering and community building can happen. And something that I am personally cultivating very intentionally in my life is friendships that fuel fuel every aspect of myself vigorously. I, during the pandemic, I really began to understand on a deep level how motivated I am by people whose values I share and who help me grow as a person and bring me out in the ways that I seek to be in the world. And so I just want to bring that into my own experience with partnership. Um, I've found that I tend to be, I guess my experience with partnership so far Um, has been an experience in being with my opposite in many ways, but the values are a place where we come together. But one thing that that means is that not every aspect of my personality is met by that partnership because that's impossible. And so I just think vigorous friendships and collectives that are really um, built to feed our flame are essential to a full life. Mm. I agree with that wholeheartedly, especially, especially I wanna highlight collectives. There's this phrase that gets thrown around a lot that takes a village to raise a child And I believe that we're all children and make that point in my first episode of Jive Talking. It takes a village to raise a child. And I believe that we're all children. We're all just 
like adults are grown up children grown ups don't have everything figured out and when things blow up in our face we still have that same expression that we had when we were five years old that doesn't change yes <laughs> we never stop being that five-year-old version of ourselves we just never have, we have to intentionally keep our younger selves in in our dialogue with ourselves we have to bring them in through maybe parts of ourselves that we have left behind or that we haven't been reminded to carry on with us like our playfulness how often do you play our curiosity how often are you shamelessly curious mm. our need for naps mm. Ooh. There's this woman named the uh, who calls herself the Nap Bishop, and she runs the Nap Ministry, and they are performance artists who create space where specifically people of color and non-binary people are given the opportunity to come into the space and rest. And mm. they create spaces that are just luxuriously comfortable. And... <laughs> they use this um, curated cultivation of a space of rest to act as a form of performance art to say we are not machines who are only here on this planet to produce and let's remind each other of that and let's rest let's make our rest a defiant act against systems that have told us that we don't deserve it Mm. that's incredible i did not know that the nap bishop or the nap ministry was out here doing such incredible stuff but <laughs> now you have opened my eyes and it's so interesting that you bring that up today grace and i um part one of the extension of the the podcast itself is a project that grace and i are working on collectively um, and we're calling it the Java Jive Social Club. And it's Ooh. really a project that's kind of lends itself to something similar to what you've described with the NAP ministry. It's a project that's really built around this idea that empathy is a practice that has to be cultivated regularly. It, it, it's not just magic that you have empathy for someone, but it's something that you have to build over time. You have to cultivate over time. And the spaces that we are um, creating um, are created with the intention of allowing folks to come as they are, to come as they want to be, and to have the option to leave the performative masks that they use in the day-to-day -day behind if they so choose. Um, mm. That is so rich. And that is the kind of community building and collective building that just feels so needed in every single one of our circles. Creating intentional space in that way is absolutely a goal that I think we share and that I want so many of us to take from these conversations. Building off of what you have just invited us into, the cultural work and community cultivation that you and the people that you are in community with are curating. I would love to close by just kind of inviting you to reflect on the inspiration of this podcast, which is the strong female leadership structures of the honeybees. They teach us how to thrive within structure where everyone has a role, and yet they maintain constant dance as a form of communication. It is actually how they tell each other where the flowers that will be the source of their sustenance can be found. And so would you share some of your own thoughts about how the honeybees and also other systems that we see in nature can be teachers for us. Mm. 
the thoughts on my mind right now are, I suppose, linked to a conversation that I was having with Grace just the other day um, in terms of like prepping for this event that I mentioned a little bit ago. And we play around with this idea that like the hunter gatherers in all of us need to gather with intention. Like that's really important. Like there's a hyper emphasis on the hunting thing and strength and dominance and this and that and everywhere you look um, as I suppose an extension of at least this theory that I have again, and that's not just me, but a lot of other really awesome communication scholars and theorists and philosophers have addressed as well that like literally the language we use shapes how we see the world and the possibility that we are able to envision, um, which is why artists are so crucial because artists often push language forward, often do creative things with the language that we have and create new language so that people can literally see new possibilities um, to extend that idea further. But like, uh, in terms of learning from the bees, I think prior to even like prepping for this conversation, I had never thought about how incredible um, bees are. I'd never thought about how awesome their natural structure is. I suppose with the exception of watching the bee movie you know, and seeing the the, uh, ex the the adventures of Barry B. Benson and friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the exception of that, that film, um, I'd never really appreciated, I suppose, like the collaborative uh, nature of, uh, of, of, of the honeybee. Um, but even in thinking about like their, their system as a system, uh, there's a lot of like meaning that we can take away from reflecting on these different bees having different roles to support the well-being of all the bees in the hive. Um, I think ultimately it comes down to balance. I think that's the idea that I've been trying to work towards. And they go out, they do what they do, they pollinate the world, they bring a lot of color into our lives. And it's through the work that they do that so many of the natural processes that we take for granted happen. Mm -hmm. That speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. Including our literal sustenance, because without pollination, there is no food. Shout out to the bees. Absolutely. And just to add one more note out of respect for them, they are on the front lines of extractive capitalism and chemical agriculture, the war against the land that is our reality in the way mm. that we're living. Because for anyone who's not aware, the one of the primary chemicals used in industrial agriculture is poisonous and devastating to the bees, um, commonly known as Roundup, main constituency mm. being neonicticides, among other harmful chemicals. And so what they are facing now even in their beauty and resilience, we're going to face it up the food chain. And so that's an even more existential reason that we need to learn from them. Question. Yes. I don't know if this is just in my head or if this is grounded because I know woefully little about bees. Do bees communicate via dance? Oh, yes. In specific context of when the scouts, who are the female honeybees who go out and search for sources of pollen and nectar, um, they trade off so that they can rest. Shout out nap ministry. Um, and 
when they are shifting from one scout finishing their voyage to a new scout going out and beginning theirs, they do something called the waggle dance, which is attuned to the axis of the earth so that they're essentially drawing an embodied map for their counterpart so that they can communicate to them where they found the best sources of pollen and nectar so that the scout can then go to that place, follow their directions and continue harvesting and bringing back the nectar and the pollen that will become alchemized into honey, which is then fed to the larva and the entire hive to sustain them. But through that process, pollination occurs, which is how we ourselves are fed. What? (laughs) (laughs) Hold the phone. Bees? Bees! (laughs) Wow. I'm so glad I asked you to answer that question because you were ready. You oh my were, God. You were, you were not only, well, I suppose you were definitely prepared and you took action. I appreciate that a lot. You were definitely <laughs> prepared, clearly. And I've then you took action. I have been fascinated with this idea that not only is it this incredible form of cooperative um, economics, like here's where you need to go to continue my work that will serve us all. But it's, it's, you know, we've named it as a dance. And I think that there's something really poetic about that, where we can do our work and still dance through it as we're expressing to each other. And that's really at the foundation of the identity of the Wild Honey Collective. Wow. Well, Kevin, I I am so grateful for this conversation and it's been such a pleasure to be in this space with you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And please, can you tell our listeners who want to hear a little bit more from you where they can find you on the socials, where they can follow your work, and where they can come out to some of the events that you're curating. Yeah, basically the one-stop shop for all information related to the things that I'm doing, you can find at my handle, which is consistent across all the social profiles I have. It's K underscore E-A-V, as in Victor, E-N. So basically K for Kevin underscore, and then all of my last name minus the L and you got it. As always, thank you so much for listening in. Your time and attention are not small things. They call it paying attention for a reason. So thank you for your investment here at the Wild Honey Collective. If you appreciate this work, The simplest and easiest way to support it is following on whatever platform you're listening, sharing it with your friends, and following us over on Instagram at wildhoney.collective. Seriously, if you take five seconds to follow wherever you are finding this work, it will help us be seen by more people and connect with fellow cultural worker bees. So thank you for your support! You can always add your own voice to the conversation by messaging me on Instagram with your reflections and questions, or by filling out the question form at wildhoneycollective.org. New episodes will keep coming every Friday through season one, all the way through February. The second half of season one will get us into more conversations about soulfulness and lived values but we will also be expanding into how the world of the wild honeybees works, how we can learn from them, and how we can craft medicine by being with and committing to wild life. Last but not least, you can support the podcast on Patreon by becoming a monthly subscriber, which comes with added benefits 
including, you know it, merch. Rock the culture out in the world and help us pollinate ideas for greater collective health. And for all you wild honeys out there, keep creating.